Business myths can hold you back by wasting your precious time and money. They are the perfect example of business issues that hide in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Exactly the topic we talk about here on Business Confidential Now. So today, we're going to look back at some common business myths that have been busted by our expert guests this year. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Welcome, friends. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and what a fantastic year 2016 has been. I've been privileged to interview so many outstanding experts in their field, and in looking over the archive to assemble this episode, I've discovered that our guests have busted a number of enduring business leadership myths, and they've done it in various creative ways. What myths am I talking about? Well, they're business practices based on assumptions or stereotype beliefs that are really false. You know, it's been said that stereotypes are shortcuts. They're convenient devices that save us the trouble of paying attention and learning the real truth. Now, stereotypes might sound good on the surface, and there may be a grain of truth to some of them. They may sound funny and even rational, but in business, they can cost you lots of time and money in the long run. And those are resources, precious resources, that could be put to better use elsewhere in your business. So now there have been a bunch of myths that our expert guests have busted this year, but I'm going to focus on today is about business leadership and top-down management. And these are the kinds of things that we've seen other executives, managers, and entrepreneurs, the folks with more experience than ourselves, say and do over the years. And it's exactly because these folks are successful that we often accept what they do without question. They're like role models. And as a result, their behaviors have become an accepted fact and part of the business folklore in our organizations passed from one generation to the next because it's part of the culture. And they've been taken as some kind of indisputable truth, when in reality, change circumstances and culture shifts in the world means they're no longer true, or certainly no longer as effective as they might have been once upon a time. And we don't live in fairy tales, right? Now, some people believe that authoritative leadership, for example, is the business gold standard. That if an employee doesn't agree with you, it's my way or the highway. And in today's business culture, the highly competitive environment the, we live in, that leadership style deserves to be knocked off its little pedestal. Yes, it does. Because in terms of productivity and profitability, it is not the gold standard. It's more like lead in your pockets that weighs you, your business culture, and organization down. Here's what business leadership expert Mark C. Crowley has to say about it. We're spending the majority of our lives at work. You would think intuitively that we would want people to be happy there, that we would want people to be feeling good about their work environment. And yet, you know, historically, we've never been concerned about those things. We've historically thought that we're going to give you a paycheck and a job. And if you don't perform, then we'll find somebody else to do that for you. And this is the traditional leadership theory that we have, you know, sort of, 
been pushing up against and, you know, use this language of white space. There are some organizations that have looked at this and said, this is preposterous. We don't want to work in an environment like this. We don't want our people coming and going. We don't want people feeling threatened and fear. Um, but this is the way we run organizations. There's an article in the New York Times that just came out about an organization called HubSpot that is just not only Dickensian in the way that they run their organization where they're just firing people unilaterally and uh, it's, also, it's additionally Orwellian where they're using language like, well, Bill's no longer here. He's graduated to better things. And so we sort of rationalize that this is normal and it's not normal. It's simply not normal, Hannah. I appreciate the sentiment. I've been involved with organizations that had that type of approach. And, you know, as an employee, I understand that it's no fun, believe me. And so I'm being a little contrary because in my experience, so many managers out there do take that approach. And and they've come up learning from other leaders thinking, well, this is how I have to be when I have that seat in that corner office. And my way or the highway, there's a lot of fear-based organizations where people aren't comfortable speaking truth to power. You know, the way it should be and the way it is, there's a gap there, which is why probably there is so much dissatisfaction and pent-up frustration of employees in the workplace. And to me, it seems that there is a tremendous missed opportunity for management and for business owners if they could tap into that. So I'd like to explore that with you. And I mean, yes, employee engagement matters, but for the longest time, people haven't paid much attention to it, have they? No. Two and a half years ago, Gallup released their statistic that was the shot heard around the world that just 30% of American workers are engaged in their jobs. And so that should be a stunning and striking number, and it should have stimulated all kinds of things that you know, organizations should have and could have done to reverse this and to win back the minds and hearts of their workers. Instead, two and a half years later, the numbers have actually declined. <laughs> They've slightly gotten worse, which means all, whatever people are doing isn't working. And for the most part, I believe that the reason it's not working is because we're moving peas on the plate. We're really not doing any of the things that are going to make a difference to people. And so there's a lot of superficial efforts being made. And what really needs to happen, Hannah, in in my opinion, and uh, this is the whole thesis of my work, is that we have people in the 21st century that want and need things that are completely different than what people went to work for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago when our traditional leadership theory was born. People went to work to get a paycheck, and the paycheck was sufficient because it allowed them to meet their their most primary needs for, you know, a a roof over their head and food on their table, and the more money they were able to make, the better they were able to provide that. But it has become more easy or easier for people to really meet those basic needs. What's happening is, is that people are looking for much more And companies are unwilling to do that. We're still giving people a paycheck and expecting them to deliver their performance. And if their performance isn't good, we still believe that replacing that person is the best thing. And that's just a failed strategy because people are looking to do more meaningful work. They want to know that the work that they do every day has a, you know, that it matters, that it's, that it's impacting people. And they want to know that their organizations intend to grow them and see a long-term future for them instead of thinking that, you know, it's just a short-term, you know, 
quid pro quo kind of a relationship. They want to be valued and appreciated. And so one of the things that you, I think, astutely said is that you've got a manager in place today who's just passing on what they were given. And what we need are organizations to be courageous and say, hey, what worked in the 19th and 20th century no longer works, and we need to reinvent how we manage and how we lead. And that, unfortunately or fortunately, really, um, means that we need to reinvent who we put into leadership roles. We need more caring, supportive uh, people going into roles. And, you know, I have this binary question, which I tell, you know, CEOs to use and all leaders, frankly, which is if you have a candidate in front of you and you're thinking about putting them into a management role, you need to be convinced that they care as much about other people as they care about themselves. Because if all you can see is evidence that they've cared about their own recognition and their own career growth and their own wealth, um, their own status within an organization, and they're not advocates for the people that they're managing, you should not be choosing them for management roles. This is a big gap today, is that we've got a lot of people in management roles where the employees working for them say, all they do is care about themselves and they don't care about me. In fact, when they start to see me succeeding or having some you know, achievements that are getting recognition, they want to squash me back because they perceive me as a threat. And this is sort of the scarcity mentality that's pervaded in business for a really long time. And when numbers aren't being hit, we go into fear management and start tormenting people and oppressing people into performance and threatening them with their jobs. And none of this works because at the end of the day, we human beings thrive on positive emotions and feelings and emotions drive human behavior and what we care about and what we commit ourselves to. And if we're giving people negative emotions, if we're making people fear, feel fear, we're making people feel unsupported, uncared for, unloved, if you will, all it does is shut people down and it takes them out of their optimal level of performance. And so what we need are managers who recognize that people have these needs and by giving them and giving them in a sustained basis that we're going to put people into a level of production and productivity that will actually transcend the level of productivity that people are aiming for right now. This is not only uh, a, a more human way of managing people, but ultimately it, because it puts people into a level of complete engagement where they can feel comfortable and safe doing their work they're immersing themselves into it, and ultimately that leads to greater productivity and ultimately greater profitability for the organizations. Well, that all makes a lot of sense, Mark. But then, how come more companies aren't doing it? Because they're being, you know, they're profitable. Well, you know, my son went to went to Cal Berkeley and was in a fraternity that was, you know, the things that they did to him were just absolutely insane. I said to him, I said, well, now, you know, the next class is coming in. Are you doing the same thing? And he goes. It's the tradition of the fraternity to do the exact same thing. And this is sort of the mindset of, well, what was done to me should be done to everybody else. And so what I really feel as a man, you know, my, my, the title of my book is Lead from the Heart, which couldn't sound softer, weaker, spoken by somebody who doesn't get business. But because I spent a whole career in financial services and, and excelled and brought all sorts of great you know, teams into greatness, uh, and, and being willing to use that language, I think I have a voice to say to people, I'm giving you permission to manage the way you know is best. When we think about the greatest leaders in our lives, the people that made the biggest difference to us, the people who challenged us, the people who believed in us, the people who appreciated it and expressed it to us, 
the people that made us feel safe, the people who, who took the time to teach what they knew, all of those kinds of things. We, we hold these people in the highest regard in our lives. And, you know, these are the kinds of people, when we work for them, they make us scale mountains for them because we feel so great working for them. And yet we don't apply what we know to be true when we start managing people, and that's just insanity. So I'm, I'm really saying, you know, go with what you know works for you. You will thrive and your people will thrive. And as a leader and, and, and as a team of performance, that's the way it works. The same leadership skills that help create a more humane workplace, more employee engagement, productivity, and of course profitability can also lead to more success at the negotiating table. But there are a lot of executives, managers, and entrepreneurs that believe good negotiators are tough and aggressive. And actually, they kind of believe you need to act like a horse is behind so people don't walk all over you. It's an extension of that authoritative leadership style, not to mention It's what they've always done, and it's worked. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. But former FBI international hostage negotiator Chris Voss would tell you otherwise. Even though he's the author of a book called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, that title might lead you to believe you've got to double down like they do in the movies when there's some hostage crisis and that the SWAT team is standing by. But here's what he has to say about that tough guy routine and the role of emotion at the bargaining table. A great negotiator recognizes that emotion is what drives people and then starts to look for it and how it's implied and what really people really care about because they're going to act in deals. They're going to implement based on what they care about and how they care about you. And uh, a great negotiator listens for that and then finds ways to capitalize well, could you give me some examples? I mean, how is somebody supposed to do that, especially in we live in such a nanosecond world these days where everybody wants something instantaneously? What are some ways to be more mindful in listening? Well, um, you know, asking yourself what's driving someone as opposed to trying to understand what they're saying, uh, you know, what's really driving them. One of the students in my class at USC was having a conversation just the other day about uh, they were trying to uh, secure a venue for a celebration for people at the university that we're going to celebrate in the semester. And the salesperson is pitching really hard about how nice the venue is to them. And, you know, what the what a salesperson is doing, you know, the harder they're pitching, the more they want the deal. And the harder they're pitching means that there's really a lot of flexibility in the deal but they're waiting to see how you react to them and whether or not they like you because there's always two issues in any price negotiation. Is there flexibility in the price and is there flexibility in the person? And if they don't happen to like the way that you interact with them and appreciate, you know, give them certain emotional validation in the conversation, there may be flexibility in the price, but they just don't like you and they're not going to give it to you. So they want you to establish a connection with them in the interaction. They want you to ask them questions. They want you to give them a chance to further illustrate their position and how much it matters to them. And if they like you, uh, which is, you know, an emotion that's involved in negotiation, then they may say, well, you know, let me go talk to my manager about this, which is exactly what happened in this particular interaction. My student came in with a price that was well below what they were offering for minimums. And they had a really pleasant interaction. My student used a number of uh, the tools that I teach in the class 
to get the, give the other person a chance to really talk about their venue and be appreciated in the conversation. Um, my students who had an offer that was well below what they wanted, and they said, you know, thanks, thanks, uh, but no thanks. Um, let us know how you got a hold of us and, you know, keep us in mind for the future because the interaction was so positive. The salesperson actually called back an hour after the call was over and, and dropped the price. So did your student get the price that they originally offered, or was it something more in between? Well, as it turned out, they came all the way down to my student's price. There was no splitting the difference. She threw out she threw out one offer, and they came all the way down to it. And then, uh, unfortunately, their plans had changed in the meantime, and they decided to go with another venue. So she actually, they didn't compromise on a price at all. They got everything that they wanted. It then just became concerned that they wouldn't be able to have enough people that would show up for the event, and they didn't make the deal, even though they got the, the price that was offered to them as asked. But the, the the nice thing about it also is because the interaction was positive, you know, people don't remember things how they happen. They, re- they remember it based on the most intense moment of the interaction, and they remember how it ended. And the other thing that she was doing was I had taught her that, you know, always end on a positive note because that's going to be what they're thinking about the next time they call you on the phone or the next time they see you, how your last interaction ended. You know, my, my mother used to always say, uh, you know, the great phrase, if you don't make a good first impression, you won't get a chance to make a second. Well, your first impression is actually the second most important impression you have. Uh, how you leave someone, your last impression is far more important than any other moment in, in an interaction. So understanding that emotional dynamic in every interaction, if you always end positively, then whenever they think about you again, they remember how they last ended with you. And they're more likely to call you again. Or if you turn them down on the last deal, they're more likely to be flexible with you when you call and want to do business again. Makes sense. Your mother is a wise woman. <laughs> yes, I agree. So it sounds like soft skills are really pivotal when it comes to hard negotiations. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, that's, 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 that's a great way of putting it um, because... The harder the negotiation is, you know, the more that's at stake, the more sort of wound up people get in the process. And, you, you know, you want to find out where their flexibility is without beating it out of them because they're going to resent you if you beat them. So the, you know, the emotional intelligence skills that hostage negotiation applied to business is all about is really understanding What's driving them that you need to, you know, the negatives that you need to diffuse and the positives that you need to encourage and reinforce and increase. Because the harder the negotiation, the more they're going to care about the outcome. And really, in any given deal, uh, the profit is never made at signing. The profit is made in implementation, which is why we always say yes is nothing without how. They can say yes, but if you haven't worked out how and they don't agree to go on, uh, go through with the deal and implement, and you're going to lose all your profit. So if you've, if you've won a particularly hard negotiation, well, there's a lot of implementation that has got to uh, take place in order for you to make your profit. And they have to feel good about you as a result of that interaction, and they're just not going to implement. So the soft skills of, you know, it's not just empathy. I actually call it tactical empathy. It's understanding specifically how the emotions drive people and what emotions you have to get out of the way so that they will implement and make your money. And that's all about the soft skills, emotional intelligence, tactical empathy. So from Chris Voss, we learn the importance of emotional intelligence and tactical empathy. It makes sense. 
But if you come from an authoritative command and control leadership culture, senior management, the top dogs in the organization, well, they know best by definition because they got the title, right? That's how it works. And what that means as a practical matter is that the advocacy of top-down communications, that tendency to want to control the conversation with employees and everyone you talk to, spewing words like a fire hose, is often done at the expense of listening. Here's what internationally known listening expert Dr. Kitty Watson has to say about that dynamic. We are told and we're, we practice being advocates and thinking about our point of view and getting our message across and persuading and influencing others. But in actuality, the only way we can get someone to listen to us is if they choose to. We cannot control where a person's mind goes or how involved it might be. Sometimes, in fact, by what we say, we send them on what I call mental trips. We send them send them out of the space that we're in because of the stories that we tell or the examples that we use or the statistics. It might get them to go somewhere else to think about something else. So we have to constantly be thinking about how to re-engage and get people to be with us. We can think at a much faster rate than a person can speak, so it gives us extra time. And if we do get off track, on board, thinking about something else, we can really lose out on the conversation and valuable information. Well, that valuable information is exactly why listening is such a critical and important leadership skill. We we do believe people are listening, and it's often too late when we realize there's been a mistake, or they've listened to what's most important to them and not what we hope they would remember. So we have to also think of ways to get people to retain what we think is most important, and it may be some things that we do to help listeners even after the fact. So after meeting, we might summarize what was said and what our action items are. Um, if we find that some listeners seem to get off track, you know, because they are interested in other topics than what we were discussing, we might bring them back to the topic at hand or ask for another meeting where we could talk about something else. So, again, we, we get distracted very, very easily in normal conversation unless there's like-mindedness about what the purpose is and how we prepare people to listen in the moment. How can we become better listeners? How can we be more mindful? Well, I appreciate your asking that because listening is a habit. And so just as we're intentional about developing all kinds of communication habits through the years, our educational system has taught us about reading and writing and, and, and speaking and not as much about listening. I mean, in a typical audience, if I ask them if they've had a course in listening, very few would say that they have, particularly a long course of a year or even a quarter or semester in college. Yet all of us have had courses in writing and reading, and many of us have had presentation skills training and all that too. So if we had training in those communication skills, and we have it in listening, we can take it on ourselves to begin to try to listen differently and retain information. One of the challenges is that there are so many different types of listening. So there's listening comprehension to make sure that you understood and interpreted messages correctly. One way to test your comprehension and retention is just to record, as many of us do with DVRs, is to record the news 
show or a program, and then afterwards, test yourself on how much you really retain. You can also get an idea of what kind of listener you are if you're the one that always remembers human interest stories, or are you the ones that um, listen to the facts and statistics or medical news about what what people are learning. So all of those things can make a big difference in how we come across and what we listen to. Um, that's one way. Now, there's also appreciative listening where um, and compassionate listening, where we're learning more and more about empathy and in the healthcare professions, for example, where patients um, feel as though healthcare providers care about them individually. And in fact, in the healthcare profession, that's one of the assessments now that patients are asked is whether or not they felt listened to, heard, and understood. And so we need to think about certain situations that we're in and the type of listening that might be most important or valuable for us in the moment. So in conclusion, if your organization has an authoritative command and control leadership style, just think about how much more effective and successful you can be if you have the courage to modify your approach. I know it's ironic and it's totally counterintuitive that soft skills such as listening, caring, emotional intelligence, tactical empathy makes your leadership more powerful in its ability to influence people, achieve results, and improve profits. Yep, the soft stuff can actually make your organization stronger. And you can't fake that because just as you have a good BS meter, so do they. So if it's not genuine, it's not going to work. And when you think about it, it really comes down to the law of supply and demand. Feeling listened to, respected, appreciated, cared about. It's what your employees, your partners, customers, clients, patients, even your suppliers and vendors crave. So give it to them. Be a winner. Be their hero. Supply it before someone else does. Meet the demand. It will give you a tremendous competitive advantage. Definitely food for thought. I invite you to visit the episode page of today's show on businessconfidentialradio.com so that you can listen to the full interviews that today's excerpt clips were taken from with leadership expert Mark C. Crowley, top negotiator Chris Voss, and international listening expert Dr. Kitty Watson. As part of today's show notes, we'll have links to their individual episodes, books, and contact information. That's on businessconfidentialradio.com. This episode will be available in the archive as part of Season 2, Episode 52, and that's at businessconfidentialradio.com. Thank you for joining me today. You can get more information about today's guest and the show notes on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com and connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more business information and inside scoop you need to succeed in your business. Till then, 